Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to Origins. This is a podcast encompassing stories concerning just about anything and everything. There is information, theories, news, stories, conjecture and ideas from history, geography, science, technology, language, medicine, archaeology, anything really. If you're interested in everything and anything, come along and listen and enjoy the show. Visit my website for the show notes, www.origins.info. Looking for a podcast that's more challenging, more stimulating intellectually? Well, here's the place. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. once entitled US skies were as deadly as Korea. Now you might notice that episode 12 is followed very closely on the heels of episode 11. Well in Australia this weekend where I live in Brisbane in Queensland uh, it's reached 40 degrees Celsius which is 104 degrees Fahrenheit so for the last couple of days I've actually been hiding out in our air conditioning in the house because it's actually been too hot to go outside. So as I had plenty of articles, I thought, ah, why not put two episodes together back to back and put them up for the listeners. So you're lucky, I'm cool. Now, in episode 12, we're talking about things like uh, the US skies were as deadly as Korea, which is a UFO story. It's mysteries of the computer from 65 BC are solved. 20 facts about the human genome. What would life be like without the moon? Looted art from the uh, Second World War seeks owners in Jerusalem. There is some spinal injury regeneration hope. A blog about Atlantis, theory and fantasy. Weird science tidbit and oddities. Sorry, I forgot to put that in the last episode, even though I mentioned it. Scientists would turn greenhouse gas into gasoline. The usual stuff from the mindlesscrap.org site. And from Panati's Extraordinary Origins of Everyday Things book, The Origin of the Wedding Ring. Sit back and enjoy.
Our first story today comes from beyondtheblog.wordpress.com and it's by Anthony North and it's entitled Atlantis, Theory and Fantasy. Did Atlantis exist or was it merely a fantasy conjured up by Plato and kept alive through wishful thinking over the centuries? If it did exist, where can we find its remains? We can ask other questions. For instance, just what was Atlantis? How did it disappear? In this essay I will be examining just a few such theories and seeing where realistic ideas end and fantasy begins. The Pillars of Hercules One popular assertion from Plato is that Atlantis was beyond the Pillars of Hercules. These are almost unanimously thought to be the outcrops either side of the Straits of Gibraltar. The mythology of the Straits of Gibraltar is neat and explanatory. Geographically speaking, they represent a narrow stretch of water separating the Mediterranean Sea from the Atlantic Ocean, and mystically they separate the known world from the unknown. To the north and south of the Straits are two large promontories, the Rock of Gibraltar in Europe and the Abila on the African coast. These are the pillars separating the narrow strait, but according to legend the two promontories were much closer. Indeed, they were a closed gate, until, that is, the mighty Hercules stood by the rocks and pushed them apart, thus allowing the waters to flood in. Atlantis and Colonisation The ancient Greeks were great colonisers, founding many Mediterranean cities which exist to this day. And bearing this adventurousness in mind, we can see the myth of Hercules separating the straits as a desire of the ancient Greeks to learn more, shedding light on what is dark, a noble pursuit that was later to find additional expression in their great philosophers, of which Plato was one of the greatest exponents. In this sense, Atlantis can, therefore, be seen in a place where our knowledge is dark, rather than physically beyond. And it is, perhaps, in the same magnificent spirit that Atlantis rose to popular consciousness in the 19th century during a similar time of great expansion and colonisation. This was the time of the great European empire building, and the time when America first expressed its wish to be a superpower going on to eclipse Europe. We can here see why some people would be eager to realise the existence of a great lost civilization, divorced from all the other races on earth. And to this we must also add the publication, in 1859, of Charles Darwin's Origin of Species. With God in decline, a new theory of human origins was abroad, that we had evolved through natural selection, and Western society was its highest expression. Such an idea infused Victorian society in the 19th century. With the Industrial Revolution well advanced and the European empires coming very much into being, the Victorians saw themselves as the apex of the evolutionary story. And with such sentiments, it is not difficult to see the inspiration for the literal profusion of ideas concerning Atlantis. The American and the Western European was retracing the greatness that existed in the deep, dark past. Ignatius Donnelly Due to this popular awareness, when Ignatius Donnelly published his Atlantis, the Antediluvian World in 1882, it created immense interest. Donnelly, an American congressman, created many of the controversies and views concerning Atlantis that survive to this day. 
Principal among these was his idea that at one time Atlantis existed in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean until its destruction in a cataclysm. Positing an earthquake as the most likely reason for its destruction, to Donnelly, Atlantis had acted as a form of bridge between cultures either side of the Atlantic, the island itself being the primary source of those cultures. Donnelly found evidence for his idea wherever he looked. For instance, throughout the Atlantic there are small islands which are in fact the tips of undersea mountains. To Donnelly, these are all that is left of the mountains that used to be above sea level, forming part of the Atlantis homeland. Similarly, evidence of his idea of Atlantis as the primary source of culture could be seen throughout the ancient world, in the similarities of cultures, architecture, writing styles and other achievements, from the Incas to the ancient Egyptians. He also posited the idea that the sudden appearance of these cultures could only be explained by the sudden disappearance of their mother culture. Pseudo-scholars Ignatius Donnelly was one of the first modern pseudo-scholars. Mocked and derided by most serious researchers, they are often believable and always popular. In Donnelly's case, his persuasive writing went on to prompt British Prime Minister Gladstone to attempt to get Parliament to fund a ship to trace the sunken coastline of Atlantis. Today we know that much of Donnelly's evidence was untrue, but this should not be used as an excuse to ignore pseudo-scholarship in its entirety. For instance, the list of great pseudo-scholars of the past include Charles Darwin, who was a lifelong amateur, Gregor Mendel, the discoverer of genetics and a monk, and the great Sir Isaac Newton himself. His real search was not so much scientific, but to find the great spirit of the universe. Of course, not all pseudo-scholars are successful, like this trio. Indeed, many of them do write absolute hogwash. You may even decide that I fit in this last category. But, at worst, such writers at least fuel the experts to define more completely, and at best, they can begin entirely new sciences. Lewis Spence Donnelly began an Atlantean tradition of speculation, deep theory, and occasional lunacy, which continues to this day. One principal writer in this vein was Scottish newspaper editor and the editor of The Atlantis Quarterly, Lewis Spence. After writing studies of the mythologies of Egypt, Babylon and the early Americas, in the 1920s he turned his attention to Atlantis, which he decided had covered most of the Atlantic Ocean in the Miocene period, ending 10 million years ago. At this point it disintegrated into smaller islands and from 25,000 to 10,000 years ago disappeared completely. Studying the Atlantic coast of Europe, Spence decided that the early humans, such as Cro-Magnon Man, had actually migrated from the western side of Atlantis near the Americas. Only in this way can we see Cro-Magnon Man as the real invader he was, going on to wipe out Europe's indigenous Neanderthal Man. Taking his evidence from a wide variety of sources, including archaeology, anthropology, geology and mythology, much of this is totally discredited. But this did not stop the speculation, sometimes coming from scientists themselves. The Azores, stupid. One such scientist was Austrian physicist Otto Muck. 
Opting for the Azores as the location of the destroyed Atlantis, he argued that in 8500 BC the sunken continent was lost when a large asteroid struck the Charlestown coast of North America. Some most unusual evidence of something strange about the Azores did, in fact, surface in 1898, when a telegraph company used grappling equipment to mend a broken transatlantic cable 500 miles north of the Azores. French geologist Piers Termineur was sent samples from the rocks brought up from the seabed. Identifying them as basaltic lava, they did, however, show evidence of volcanic activity above sea level in the recent geological past. No real evidence has been found to link an asteroid collision to the destruction of a large Atlantic island, but this has not stopped some amazing disaster scenarios to irritate scientists. Disaster Scenarios Typical was Austrian engineer Hans Hoberger, Fascinated by astronomy and mythology, he put mythologies of a malevolent moon down to the fact that Earth had been struck by the moon in the past. However, this was not our present moon. This, Hobiger was convinced, was just a ball of ice. But in the past, Earth had had a second moon, a captured comet, which caused a great flood and other disasters when it exploded. Many Atlantis theorists have associated this much discredited disaster scenario with the destruction of Atlantis. And the same can be said for the ideas of psychoanalyst Emanuel Velikovsky. Fascinated by Sigmund Freud's idea that Moses was also the Egyptian pharaoh Akhenaten, a pharaoh who briefly introduced into Egypt the idea of a single god, Velikovsky became intrigued by early mythologies. In particular, the disasters such as the flood arrested his attention. In 1680, a comet had approached Earth, and the scientist W. Whiston had put forward the idea that on a previous encounter, this comet had caused the biblical flood. Velikovsky tended to agree with this idea, and went on to formulate a cosmology in which a comet had several times approached the Earth, causing all biblical disasters and accounting for the destruction of Atlantis, before finally settling down to become the planet Venus. In conclusion, of course, none of these ideas can be backed up by real science. For instance, the moon is not made of ice. Venus is a definite planet. But in the world of Atlantean speculation, anything goes. But my central point here would be, and why not? For instance, academia must always be challenged, otherwise all we will ever have for knowledge is consensus and consensus can cripple knowledge. Similarly, archaeology has made many advances in their techniques due to their need to disprove certain pseudo-scholars. So, if for no other reason than this, pseudo-scholarship, and Atlantology in particular, have a vital role. But most importantly, Atlantis makes us expand our minds, gives us the idea that knowledge is not complete. It keeps alive the thirst to inquire, an inquiry that led to the ideas and ideals of the modern world in the first place. Whether theory or fantasy, Atlantis remains one of the central symbols of the thinking mind. And that blog, Atlantis, Theory and Fantasy, was posted by Anthony North on February 17, 2008. We are all one. One family. One heart. One Spirit.
And now, 20 facts about the human genome. The genome is the complete list of coded instructions needed to make a person. The four letters in the DNA alphabet, A, C, G and T, are used to carry any instructions for making all organisms. The order or sequence of these letters holds the code, just like the order of letters that makes words mean something. Each set of three letters corresponds to a single amino acid. There are 20 different building blocks, or amino acids, used in a bewildering array of combinations to produce our proteins. The different combinations make proteins as different as keratin in hair and haemoglobin in blood. The information would fill a stack of paperback books 200 feet high. The information would fill 200, 500 page telephone directories. Between humans, our DNA differs by only 0.2% or 1 in 500 bases, letters that is. This takes into account that human cells have two copies of the genome. If we recited the genome at one letter per second for 24 hours a day, it would take a century to recite the Book of Life. If two different people started reciting their individual books at a rate of one letter per second, it would take nearly eight and a half minutes, or 500 seconds, before they reached a difference. A typist typing at 60 words per minute, around 360 letters, for eight hours a day would take around 50 years to type the Book of Life. Our DNA is 98% identical to that of chimpanzees. The estimated number of genes in both humans and mice is 60,000 to 100,000. In the round worm, C. elegans, the number is approximately 19,000. In yeast, there are around 6,000 genes, and the microbe responsible for tuberculosis has around 4,000. The vast majority of DNA in the human genome, 97%, has no known function. The first chromosome to be completely decoded was chromosome 22 at the Sanger Centre, now the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute, in Cambridgeshire in December 1999. There is six feet of DNA in each of our cells, packed into a structure only 0.0004 inches across. It would easily fit on the head of a pin. There are three billion letters in the DNA code in every cell in your body. There are 100 trillion cells in the body. If all the DNA in the human body was put end to end, it would reach to the sun and back over 600 times. 12,000 letters of DNA are decoded by the Human Genome Project every second. If all three billion letters were spread out one millimetre apart, they would extend 3,000 kilometres or about 7,000 times the height of the Empire State Building. And lastly, if all 3 billion letters were spread out 3 millimetres apart, they would extend 9,000 kilometres, more than twice the length of the Mississippi River, at 3,779 kilometres. We are all one. One family. One heart. One spirit.
And today's lead story comes from the heraldtribune.com. It's entitled, US Skies Were As Deadly As Korea, and it's written by Billy Cox. In the summer of 1952, the Pentagon's kettle was whistling. At a time when the US was bracing for Soviet airstrikes, UFOs were systematically exposing holes in the defence netting with publicised incursions over Washington, D.C., nuclear plants and military bases. Major General Robert Ramsey of the U.S. Air Force went on record saying jet fighters had been scrambled several hundred times to pursue UFOs. Not surprisingly, the brass decided to get aggressive. On July 29, the International News Service announced, The Air Force revealed today that jet pilots have been placed on a 24-hour nationwide alert against flying saucers with orders to shoot them down if they refuse to land. The order was so provocative that Robert Farnsworth, president of the U.S. Rocket Society, wrote a letter of protest to the White House. Hostile action against UFOs, Farnsworth wrote, could cause unbelievable suffering and death. After the 1952 wave had subsided, Captain Edward Ruppelt, former director of the USAF's Project Blue Book, revealed that UFOs contrary to an emerging opinion suggesting peaceful intentions, weren't to be trifled with. In alluding to the loss of military pilots who gave chase, he wrote, If the Air Force hadn't slapped down the security lid, these writers might not have reached this conclusion about peaceful aliens. There have been other and more lurid duels of death. That's what everybody missed. Ruppelt didn't elaborate but Port Orange author Frank Ficino tries to connect the dots in his 2007 book, Shoot Them Down. Using New York Times figures, Ficino notes that the military lost 185 aircraft over the US and its coastal waters from 1951 to 1956, versus 104 fighter planes downed in the Korean War during roughly half that same time period. On the domestic front, those crashes claimed the lives of 199 aviators in what were labelled as accidents. It may be impossible to get to the bottom of all those accidents. As William E. Burroughs pointed out in 2001, deception is the cornerstone of national security. In, by any means necessary, America's secret war in the Cold War, Burroughs described how, from 1950 to 1969, 18 planes with more than 160 US airmen and agents were lost during covert operations against communist nations. To avoid embarrassments, authorities told survivors their sons, husbands, fathers and brothers were killed during routine missions. Maybe these events include some of Ruppelt's lurid casualties as well. Who knows? But Ficino's exhaustive research, which includes newspaper accounts of carnage on the ground when downed jets crashed into residential neighbourhoods, indicates the Times accident figures are incomplete. He also establishes a pattern between UFO sightings and routine mission accidents. Ficino's riskiest scenario occurred September 12, 1952, when sightings over the eastern seaboard were widespread and documented in the press. Thanks to inconsistencies and contradictions in Air Force records, Ficino projects that a dogfight started that afternoon over the Gulf of Mexico near Tampa, engaged other jets off the Virginia coast during the early evening, and resulted in several direct hits of UFOs, one of which went down in West Virginia in front of eyewitnesses. 
a military search team was dispatched to recover debris from near the rural town of Flatwoods. At least one thing about shoot them down is indisputable. Based on newspaper reports, the number of 1952 UFO incidents listed in Project Blue Book is underrepresented. The relevance for today? Well, the military reported no routine training accidents during last month's Stephenville UFO incident in Texas. I think they learned their lesson from 1952, Fashino says. Now story from the damn interesting website. Life Without the Moon by Jason Bellows Life is a tenuous thing. Earth is just within Sol's habitable zone and constantly pelted with solar radiation and cosmic rays. Rocky scraps of cosmic afterbirth constantly cross Earth's orbit, threatening to eradicate all terrestrial life. In point of fact, it is almost certain that countless extinction-level events would have sterilised the surface of our plucky planet had it not been for our constant companion and benefactor, a body which unwittingly wards away many of the ills that could befall us, the moon. Luna is unique amongst the observed celestial bodies. There is no other satellite closer in size and composition to its mother planet, if one discounts the dwarf planet Pluto and the Earth-Moon system is the only tidally locked pair. Furthermore, it also happens to be the only moon in the solar system which is circling an intelligent civilization, a factor which may not be a mere coincidence. It was four and a half billion years ago, last week, that the young planetesimal Earth was forming from the Sun's accretion disk of dusk and boulders. Several other aspiring planets were building up nearby, one particularly promising young protoplanet was making some exemplary progress by loitering in Earth's Lagrange point, allowing it to share Earth's orbit by staying at a gravitationally neutral distance. As the mass of both young Earth and her small arrival, Thea, increased, the gravitationally stable Lagrange point was insufficient to keep the worldlets apart, and the proto-worlds were drawing together. Thea, approximately Mars-sized by now, accelerated towards and slammed into the Earth at an oblique angle. The heavy core of the smaller world didn't have the velocity to escape Earth, but a large swath of the lighter mantle material of both were flung into orbit. Within the year, the Moon, we know, was well under construction, or so goes the popular theory. No one bothered to record for us the rate of Earth's spin before the incident, but like a glancing shot off a billiards ball, the giant impact certainly made sure it was spinning afterward. In that era, the moon was much nearer Earth and would have looked much larger, several times the size of the sun. For a long time, the moon retained a molten core and the accompanying magnetic fields which left geological marks on our world. When things were almost settled down, there was an era called Late Planetary Bombardment when both Earth and its companion were pelted by impacts that blew planetary debris around and left some of Earth's ancient geology on the Moon. 
Over the eons, erosion has scrubbed away all evidence of that ancient time from the earth, but some of the chunks that were blasted to the moon were preserved in a frozen, unchanged state. Ultimately, these remnants of the earth's violent youth would be found by enterprising humans, such as the infamous Genesis rock collected by the Apollo 15 astronauts. Observations of the solar system show us that the moon's birth was rather unusual. All of the other worlds either lack satellites or have captured them from other places. Of course, the moon isn't Earth's only unusual resident. Its surface crawls with all manner of strange and delicate carbon-based life forms. Adherents of the rare Earth theory postulate that a large moon such as ours is not merely a benefit for life, but essentially a requirement. Although our planetary neighbour Mars also technically lies within Sol's habitable zone, there is reason to speculate that life never could get a foothold there because of its axial tilt. Mars's axis can wobble from up to 10 degrees to the current 25 degrees and maybe more. This has sometimes leaned one of the poles so sharply that the ice melted, filling the meagre atmosphere with water vapour that froze again on the next season. By introducing such extremes to the weather, the planet would potentially go through phases where sheets of ice were laid on the surface for epochs, then melted away when the axis tilt became more favourable. When the Phoenix lander lands near a Martian ice cap in May, we may get a chance to see evidence of this ice age cycle on the surface. While Earth has had its share of ice ages, the gravity of the Moon has acted as a gyroscope keeping the Earth's axis steady at 23.5 degrees and sparing us the wild environmental changes Mars faced. This long-term stability has given life a chance to arise amidst a cycle of regular seasonal changes. A case can also be made that the tides have been invaluable to the evolution of life on our world. The Sun alone could cause some tides to occur, though they would be far less than those the Moon creates. The surfing would suck, and for many that wouldn't be a life worth living. The higher tides afforded us by Luna have made long swaths of coastline into areas that are regularly shifted between dry and wet. These variable areas may have been a proving ground for early sea life to reach out of the oceans and test the land for its suitability as a habitat. Areas farther from shore are only dry at the peak of low tide and the period of exposure to air increases as one nears shore, allowing for a subtle progression towards a waterless environment. Early life could take an advantage of this gradual change to adapt to the wildly different demands of surviving outside the ocean. It's not only water being tugged by the moon's gravity. Perhaps the moon helps keeps Earth's core and seas warmer than they would otherwise be. Since the moon circles the Earth once a month and the Earth is spinning a full turn at a much quicker 24 hours, the moon's gravity, gravity is creating drag, hence friction, as it pulls at Earth's surface. This causes several things to happen. First is a perpetual morphing of the crust like the amateurish kneading of bread that contributes a clumpy, broken mess that we call plate tectonics. Even Earth's rotation is slowed down by virtue of the Moon's pull. Without the Moon, the Earth might rotate much faster, causing a more turbulent atmosphere and thus unending gales of life-hostile skirt-blowing winds. 
This same gravimetric drag will one day slow Earth to match the pace of the Moon's orbit. As Luna's orbit slowly creeps away from the Earth at one and a half inches per year, her dragging influence will eventually slow the Earth's rotation to match the pace of the Moon's orbit. One day will be 9,600 hours long, and the Moon will only be visible from one hemisphere fixed in the sky. Of course, by then the Sun should be in an expanding red giant phase, slowly engulfing its planets. The Sun's coronal atmosphere could be creating drag against the Moon, slowing it towards an eventual breakup as Earth's gravity tears it apart. The remnants of Luna will fall back to Mother Earth as meteorites, and while it may be a pretty show, it ought to prove bad for property values and worse for the surf. If the unlikely set of circumstances which brought forth our Moon are as rare as they seem, perhaps ours is the only such planetary system in the entire vast galaxy or perhaps in our unfashionable limb of the universe. But every once in a great while, when the time is right, two protoplanets who love each other very much can touch each other in a special way and make life together. Without that magic astronomical ritual, we certainly would not have been here. And from the bbc.co.uk website, Spinal Injury Regeneration Hope. It appears that scientists believe they are close to a significant breakthrough in the treatment of spinal injuries. The University of Cambridge team is developing a treatment which could potentially allow damaged nerve fibres to regenerate within the spinal cord. It may also encourage the remaining undamaged nerve fibres to work more effectively. Spinal injuries are difficult to treat because the body cannot repair damage to the brain or spinal cord. Although it is possible for nerves to regenerate, they are blocked by the scar tissue that forms at the site of the spinal injury. The Cambridge team has identified a bacteria enzyme called chondroitinase, which is capable of digesting molecules within scar tissue to allow some nerve fibres to regrow. The enzyme also promotes nerve plasticity which potentially means that remaining undamaged nerve fibres have an increased likelihood of making new connections that could bypass the area of damage. In preliminary tests, the researchers have shown that combining chondroitinase with rehabilitation produces better results than using either technique alone. However, trials have yet to begin in patients. Lead researcher Professor James Fawcett said, It is rare to find that a spinal cord is completely severed. Generally, there are still some nerve fibres that are undamaged. Chondroitinase offers us hope in two ways. Firstly, it allows some nerve fibres to regenerate, and secondly, it enables other nerves to take on the role of these fibres that cannot be repaired. Along with rehabilitation, we are very hopeful that at least we may be able to offer paralysed patients a treatment to improve their condition. Dr Yolandi Harley of the charity Action Medical Research, which funded the work, said, This is extremely exciting, groundbreaking work, which will give new hope to people with recent spinal injuries. Paul Smith of the Spinal Injuries Association said medical advances meant that spinal injuries had ceased to be the terminal conditions they often once were, but they still had a huge impact on quality of life. However, he warned against raising expectations before the treatment was fully tested on patients. He said, What often happens in a clinical setting is that you don't get to see the results you would have liked. 
In the UK, there are more than 40,000 people suffering from injuries to their spine, which can take the form of anything from loss of sensation to full paralysis. And the average age at the time of injury is just 19. Another story from the bbc.co.uk website, and this is from their Middle East correspondent. Looted Ark seats owners in Jerusalem. Looking for owners, the new exhibition at Jerusalem's Israel Museum is like peering through painted windows of the past. It is the first time that art looted in France by the Nazis and never reclaimed is on display in Israel. James Snyder, the director of the Israel Museum, says hosting the exhibits in Israel, the Jewish state, has special significance. The state of Israel itself, in a way, grew from the ashes of the tragedy of World War II, so it is very meaningful in a sentimental way and in an emotional way to have an exhibition on the subject of works taken during the war here in Israel, he said. Between 1933 and 1945, the Nazis looted, destroyed and hoarded art on a scale unprecedented in history. The exhibition's catalogue shows black and white pictures of German warehouses packed full of paintings. There is even one of Hitler beaming as he receives a work of art on his birthday. Hundreds of thousands of paintings were stolen by the Nazis from Jewish families and others. If you include furniture, sculptures and other artefacts, experts say the figures soar into the millions. Some items were destined to enrich the personal collections of prominent Nazis. Others were swapped on the international art market for artefacts considered more desirable and less degenerate in the Third Reich. Some were simply sold to fill the coffers of Nazi Germany. In France alone, an estimated 100,000 paintings were stolen. After the war, thousands were found stashed away in German salt mines, depots and private homes. Most were returned to France and either reclaimed or auctioned, but about 2,000 paintings remain unclaimed. These include works worth millions of dollars by famed European artists such as Claude Monet, Eugène Delacroix and Georges Serrault. The French curator of the exhibition, Isabelle Le Monstre Chamont, says her government decided to assemble the works partly as a tribute to memory, but also to show the efforts made by France, even now, more than 60 years after the war, to find the rightful owners of the artwork. The unclaimed works of art have also been archived online for the public to view, in an effort to return more art. Whether its paintings are Monet or minor works by unknown artists, the exhibition is about more than art. It's about the history of those who stole it and the people the works were stolen from. For some of those visiting the Israel Museum, the paintings are a last tangible link to a family lost or a past destroyed. Holocaust survivor Norbert Seigel came from Tel Aviv to see the exhibition. It brought back a lot of memories, he told me. I was born in Teshnowitz, then part of Romania. It was known as a cultural city, full of painters. I was a little boy when the Nazis came in 1941, but I remember when the German soldiers broke down the door of our house with guns and started looking at the walls. I didn't know what they were doing at the time, but I know now they were looking for paintings. My parents and I stood there with our hands up, waiting for the end, 
but they didn't kill us. They sent us to a concentration camp instead. Lee Ozari said she grew up feeling the terrible losses caused by the Holocaust, even though she was born in Israel. I remember my mother crying a lot. She lost all her family. My father used to search the newspapers desperately for news to know if any of his family had survived. It's so important to me to be able to come to this exhibition and see what people and countries have done to save these paintings. To me, it's more important than seeing the paintings themselves. It's very emotional. There is an international effort underway to return art stolen by the Nazis, but many collectors died in concentration camps. The paintings they left behind are a surviving testimony to the horrors of the Holocaust. And now from the mindlesscrap.org website. Where does the term caught red-handed come from? Well, in medieval times, animal rustlers who killed someone else's livestock were sometimes clumsy enough not to clean the blood off their fingers. Hence they were caught red-handed. The word champagne. Named for the Champagne region of France, in which it was first created by a 17th century monk named Dom Perignon, Dom never meant to create champagne. It actually happened by accident. He invented the cork to act as a new top for the bottles of wine produced by his abbey, rather than using the traditional cloth rag stoppers. The cloth allowed carbon dioxide that formed during fermentation to escape, but the corks didn't. They were airtight and caused bubbles to form in the wine. Coat of arms, where does that come from? In the Middle Ages, knights walked around in suits of steel armour. When the visors were down, they all looked alike. To keep from doing battle with their friends by mistake, the knights started painting pictures on their shields for identification. Later, a fabric was woven that went over the armour, similar in design to a sweater. The knight's personal design was woven into the fabric, which came to be known as a coat of arms. Coconut. Portuguese explorers of the 15th century sailing around Africa found the fruit growing on several islands in the Indian Ocean. The nut was about the size and shape of a small head, and the three holes resembled a grinning face. The explorers called it coco, which means a grinning face in Portuguese. Coleslaw. The food comes from a combination of Dutch words. Kool, or meaning cabbage, and sla, meaning salad. Cop, C-O-P, referring to policeman. Cop was first used in 1704 to describe a policeman. It originates from the Roman times, who used to refer to officers as caps, which is short for capere, to capture. The credit card. The term was coined in 1888 by an author named Edward Bellamy who wrote a fictional account of a young man who wakes up in the year 2000 and discovers that cash has been dumped in favour of a credit corresponding to his share of the annual product of the nation and a credit card is issued to him with which he procures at the public storehouses whatever he desires, whenever he desires it. And the lucky last one, crocodile tears. The idea that a crocodile cries dates back to the 4th century. 
but it didn't appear in English writings until the 16th century. At the time, it was generally believed that the crocodile shed tears to lure their prey. And this is a story from the guardian.co.uk website and it's about that little computer they found that dated back to 65 BC uh, when they found it, it was all corroded and everything and, but they've x-rayed it and studied it and they think they might have actually solved what it is. It's something that always interested me. Um, the story is by Ian Sample. A 2,000-year-old mechanical computer salvaged from a Roman shipwreck has astounded scientists who have finally unravelled the secrets of how the sophisticated device works. The machine was lost among cargo in 65 BC when the ship carrying it sank in 42 metres of water off the coast of the Greek island of Ankythera. By chance, in 1900, a sponge diver called Ilios Statios discovered the wreck and recovered statues and other artefacts from the site. The machine first came to light when an archaeologist working on the recovered objects noticed that a lump of rock had a gear wheel embedded in it. Closer inspection of the material brought up from the stricken ship subsequently revealed 80 pieces of gear wheels, dials, clock-like hands and a wooden and bronze casing bearing ancient Greek inscriptions. Since its discovery, scientists have been trying to reconstruct the device, which is now known to be an astronomical calendar capable of tracking, with remarkable precision, the position of the sun, several heavenly bodies and the phases of the moon. Experts believe it to be the earliest known device to use gear wheels and by the far most sophisticated object to be found from ancient and medieval periods. Using modern computer X-ray tomography and high-resolution surface scanning, a team led by Mike Edmonds and Tony Freeth at Cardiff University peered inside fragments of the crust-encased mechanism and read the faintest inscriptions that once covered the outer casing of the machine. Detailed imaging of the mechanism suggests it dated back to 150 to 100 BC and had 37 gear wheels enabling it to follow the movements of the moon and the sun through the zodiac, predict eclipses and even recreate the irregular orbit of the moon. The motion, known as the first lunar anomaly, was developed by the astronomer Hipparchus of Rhodes in the 2nd century BC, and he may have been consulted in the machine's construction, the scientists speculate. Remarkably, scans showed the device uses a differential gear, which was previously believed to have been invented in the 16th century. The level of miniaturization and complexity of its parts is comparable to that of 18th century clocks. Some researchers believe the machine, known as the Antikythera mechanism, may have been among the treasure looted from Rhodes that was en route to Rome for a celebration staged by Julius Caesar. One of the remaining mysteries is why the Greek technology invented for the machine seemed to disappear. No other civilization is believed to have created anything as complex for another thousand years. One explanation could be that bronze was often recycled in the period the device was made. So many artefacts from that time have long ago been melted down and erased from the archaeological record. The fateful sinking of the ship carrying the Antikythera mechanism may have inadvertently preserved it.
This device is extraordinary, the only thing of its kind, said Professor Edmonds. The astronomy is exactly right. In terms of historic and scarcity value, I have to regard this mechanism as being more valuable than the Mona Lisa. The research, which appears in the journal Nature Today, was carried out with the scientists at the National Archaeological Museum of Athens, where the mechanism is held, and the University of Athens and Thessaloniki. And now another article about alternative methods of finding energy now that oil and all that is starting to run low. This one is from the science section of the New York Times.com. And it's entitled, Scientists Would Turn Greenhouse Gas Into Gasoline. And it's by Kenneth Chang. If two scientists at the Los Alamos National Laboratory are correct, people will still be driving gasoline-powered cars 50 years from now, churning out heat-trapping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And yet, that carbon dioxide will not contribute to global warming. The scientists, F. Jeffrey Martin and William L. Kubik, Jr., are proposing a concept which they have patriotically named Green Freedom for removing carbon dioxide from the air and turning it back into gasoline. The idea is simple. Air would be blown over a liquid solution of potassium carbonate, which would absorb the carbon dioxide. The carbon dioxide would then be extracted and subjected to chemical reactions that would turn it into fuel, methanol, gasoline or jet fuel. This process could transform carbon dioxide from an unwanted climate-changing pollutant into a vast resource for renewable fuels. The closed cycle, equal amounts of carbon dioxide emitted and removed, would mean that cars, trucks and aeroplanes using the synthetic fuels would no longer be contributing to global warming. Although they have not yet built a synthetic fuel factory or even a small prototype, the scientists say it is all based on existing technology. Everything in the concept has been built, is operating, or has a close cousin that is operating, said Dr. Martin. The Los Alamos proposal does not violate any laws of physics, and other scientists, like George A. Alar, a Nobel Prize-winning chemist at the University of Southern California, and Klaus Nackler, Lackner, a professor of geophysics at Columbia University, have independently suggested similar ideas. Dr. Martin said he and Dr. Kubik had worked out their concept in more detail than previous proposals. There is, however, a major caveat that explains why no one has built a carbon dioxide to gasoline factory before. It requires a great deal of energy. To deal with that problem, the Los Alamos scientists say they have developed a number of innovations, including a new electrochemical process for detaching the carbon dioxide after it has been absorbed into the potassium carbonate solution. The process has been tested in Dr. Kubik's garage in a simple apparatus that looks like mutant Tupperware. Even with those improvements, providing the energy to produce gasoline on a commercial scale, say uh, 750,000 gallons a day, would require a dedicated power plant, preferably a nuclear one, the scientists say. According to their analysis, their concept, which would cost about $5 billion to build, could produce gasoline at an operating cost of $1.40 a gallon and would turn economically viable when the price at the pump hits $4.60 a gallon, taking into account construction costs and other expenses in getting the gas to the consumer. With some additional technological advances, the break-even price would even drop to $3.40 a gallon, they said.
A nuclear reactor is not required technologically. The same chemical processes could also be powered by solar panels, for instance, but the economics become far less favourable. Dr Martin and Dr Kubik will present their Green Freedom concept on Wednesday at the Alternative Energy Now conference in Lake Buena Vista, Florida. They plan a simple demonstration within a year and a larger prototype within a couple of years after that. A commercial nuclear-powered gasoline factory would have to jump some high hurdles before it could be built, and thousands of them would be needed to fully replace petroleum. But this part of the global warming problem has no easy solutions. In the efforts to reduce humanity's emissions of carbon dioxide, now nearing 30 billion metric tonnes a year, most of the attention so far has focused on large stationary sources, like power plants, where, conceptually at least, one could imagine a shift from fuels that emit carbon dioxide, coal and natural gas, to those that do not, nuclear, solar and wind. Another strategy known as carbon capture and storage would continue the use of fossil fuels but trap the carbon dioxide and then pipe it underground where it would not affect the climate. But to stabilise carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere would require drastic cuts in emissions, and similar solutions do not exist for small mobile sources of carbon dioxide. Nuclear and solar-powered cars do not seem plausible any time soon. Three solutions have been offered, hydrogen-powered fuel cells, electric cars and biofuels. Biofuels like ethanol are gasoline substitutes produced from plants like corn, sugar, cane or switchgrass. And the underlying idea is the same as green freedom. Plants absorb carbon dioxide as they grow, balancing out the carbon dioxide emitted when they are burned. But growing crop for fuel takes up wide swaths of land. Hydrogen-powered cars emit no carbon dioxide but producing hydrogen by splitting water or some other chemical reaction requires copious energy and if that energy comes from coal-fired power plants then the problem has not been solved. Hydrogen is also harder to store and move than gasoline and would require an overhaul of the world's energy infrastructure. Electric cars also push the carbon dioxide problem to the power plant and electric cars have typically been limited to a range of tens of miles as opposed to hundreds of miles that can be driven on a tank of gas. Gasoline, it turns out, is almost ideal fuel, except that it produces 19.4 pounds of carbon dioxide per gallon. It is easily transported and it generates more energy per volume than most alternatives. If it can be made out of carbon dioxide in the air, the Los Alamos concept may mean there is little reason to switch after all. The concept can also be adapted for jet fuel. For jetliners, neither hydrogen nor batteries do seem plausible alternatives. This is the only one that I have seen that addresses all of the concerns that are out there right now, Dr Martin said. Other scientists said the Los Alamos project perhaps looked promising but could not fully evaluate it because the details have not yet been published. It's definitely worth pursuing, said Martin Nyhofert, a professor of physics at New York University. It's not that new an idea. It has a couple of pieces to it that are interesting. The Origin of the Wedding Ring, 2800 BC, Egypt. The origin and significance of the wedding ring is much disputed. One school of thought maintains that the modern ring is symbolic of the fetters used by barbarians to tether a bride to her captor's home. If that be true, today's double ring ceremonies fittingly express the newfound equality of the sexes.
The other school of thought focuses on the first actual bands exchanged in a marriage ceremony. A finger ring was first used in the third dynasty of the Old Kingdom of Egypt, around 2800 BC. To the Egyptians, a circle having no beginning or end signified eternity, for which marriage was binding. Rings of gold were the most highly valued by wealthy Egyptians and later the Romans. Among numerous 2,000-year-old rings unearthed at the site of Pompeii is one of a unique design that would become popular throughout Europe centuries later and in America during the flower-child era of the 60s and 70s. That extant gold marriage ring, of the type now called a friendship ring, has two carved hands clasped in a handshake. There is evidence that young Roman men of moderate financial means often went for broke for their future brides. Tertullian, a Christian priest writing in the 2nd century AD, observed that most women knew nothing of gold except the single marriage ring placed on one finger. In public, the average Roman housewife proudly wore her gold band, but at home, according to Tertullian, she wore a ring of iron. In earlier centuries, a ring's design often conveyed meaning. Several extant Roman bands bear a miniature key welded onto one side. Not that the key sentimentally suggested a bride had unlocked her husband's heart. Rather, in accordance with Roman law, it symbolised a central tenet of the marriage contract, that a wife was entitled to half of her husband's wealth, and that she could, at will, help herself to a bag of grain, a roll of linen, or whatever rested in his storehouse. Two millennia would drag on before that civil attitude would re-emerge. And that little article came from Panati's Extraordinary Origins of Everyday Things. Now for the final article for today, Weird Science Tidbits and Oddities. Number 1. Octopus Beats Grinch Heart for Heart The Grinch, that green fuzzy guy who stole Christmas, became an official good guy when his heart grew three sizes in one day. The octopus does even better. He has three hearts. Number 2. A naked tiger still has stripes. If a tiger loses all his hair, he'll still be striped. Tiger stripes are like fingerprints. Each individual cat's markings are unique, and they're not just hair, the stripes are in their skin. Seems to be a thing with cats, since your house cat's fur markings are also skin deep. Most of your body cells aren't yours, number three. Strange but true. There are more microbial cells in your body than cells that have your own DNA. As the NPR's Robert Krulwich reported in 2006, the human body has 20 times more microbes than cells. I guess that pretty well justifies the imperial we. 
Insects outnumber us, number four. Perhaps that's not so surprising since our own body's microbes outnumber us too, but the scale is pretty humbling. There are more insects in one, just one square mile of fertile soil than there are human beings on the entire planet. Number five, and we're all eating them. The average person manages to consume about 430 insects every year of their lives, whether they intended to or not. And no, not all average people ride motorcycles. Alligators never need dentures, number six. While both humans and alligators depend on their teeth in order to chew food, humans only get two sets of teeth to last them a lifetime. Alligators get from 2,000 to 3,000 teeth during the course of their lifetime, which is no doubt why we've never heard about grumpy gators gumming anybody to death. Number seven, salt of the earth is more than a title. There is enough salt in the world's oceans to cover all the land on all the continents to a depth of nearly 500 feet. Number eight, when it rains, it croaks. Despite the common weather report that it's raining cats and dogs out there, Frogs and fish are the most likely animals to fall from the sky in rain. The most recent rain of frogs occurred in 2005 in Serbia and it rained frogs in London in 1998. In 2006 it rained fish in India while whales got the fish drop in 2004. Number 9. Space resources we could put to good use. The interstellar gas cloud that comprises Sagittarius B contains a billion, 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 yes that's three orders of billion, litres of alcohol. The factoid is bound to be a big hit at the pub. Though discounted by most scientists, comic book artist Neil Adams has popularised an expanding Earth theory that challenges standard plate tectonics. In this controversial theory, our planet was once just about half as big as it is now, which purports to explain why dinosaurs got so big, less gravity, and other anomalies, and I've got a little link to a YouTube video on my website, www.origins.info, if you want to have a look at the uh, supposed example of this theory. Well, that concludes episode 12 of Origins. I hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget we have show notes linking us back to the articles and that YouTube video at www.origins.info. If you'd like to listen to my other podcast, it's called Bizarre Bizarre. That's B-I-Z-A-R-R-E-B-A-Z-A-A-R, all one word. You can find it on www.talkshoe.com if you just do a search for Bizarre Bizarre, or you can find it on iTunes. If you'd like to do a search for Bizarre Bizarre, you'll find a link to those episodes there. I'd like to thank the Podsafe Music Network as well for some of the music for today's episode. And if you'd like to give me some constructive feedback, you can do that at TalkShoe or through iTunes. Or if you'd like to email me at paulrex, P-A-U-L-R-E-X, at paulrex.com. Well, once again, thanks for listening and bye for now.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.